Welcome to episode 308 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. We now live in a world where Zoom is ubiquitous. And even though in-person meetings are starting to become more common, being able to expertly use and navigate Zoom is now a crucial skill set in many roles, particularly if you're an entrepreneur. In my years of experience as an executive Zoom producer, I've gathered a deep understanding of how to run effective Zoom sessions. And I've bundled 30 plus videos and a Zoom settings checklist into a handy PDF that I'll send right to your email so you'll always have it available. Go to robbysamuels.com forward slash videos to request this free video library. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. Reach out if you need support with a virtual event. Now, onto this week's interview. Let me introduce today's guest. And don't mind me while I read this to make sure I get it all correct. So today's guest is a champion for women in sales. She has spent her career helping Fortune 500 mid-size and SaaS-based companies grow reputable revenue, hire better, and improve sales culture to one that is inclusive and healthy. She helps fix sales team issues as a master connector. She's the founder of three brands created to improve B2B culture, Score More Sales, Women Sales Pros, and the She Sells Summit. She's the author of She Sells, attract, promote, and retain great women in B2B sales, and host of the Conversations with Women in Sales podcast. Please join me in welcoming Lori Richardson. Hi, Lori. Hey, Robbie. How are you? It's so great to be here. I'm great. This is so fantastic. Thanks for joining us from your place in Tucson, Arizona. I want to just jump right in. I know you know that the show is about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think of leadership as paving the trail. Uh, I personally was a reluctant leader because I didn't really want to be the boss or at the top or, you know, it, it, it's just something that I've, I've tried to have equals around me. But I found in, you know, in building an organization like when the sales pros, for example, we have 50 women sales experts and somebody has to lead. And so, so when I first started out, I called myself a convener and one of my very good mentors said to me, you know, that's fine and, and good. But she said, the majority of people don't understand what that means. And you're the leader. So you should be the president. (laughs) And, and people understand that people in business understand that. So be the president. And so that that's how I did it. But it was, it was reluctantly and and I've grown into it. Now I feel like I can make decisions on, on, you know, they, we don't have to have consensus all the time. It's my organization. I have a direction, a channel, a mission, a vision. And as long as I follow that, um, people can go with it or not. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to being a leader and, and a lot of things that you really need to think about in terms of who you are and what you stand for. So this is interesting because it sounds like you had this opportunity to gather, convene people. So 
clearly if that was happening, people already saw you as a leader, even if you weren't feeling comfortable with that title. I would love to roll the clock back a bit, maybe a little more than a bit. I want to hear what you're like as a kid, you know, on the playground or, you know, were you organizing people or were you running for office or did people see this sort of potential in you, the teachers, you know, who were you? I did. I wanted to be a teacher. I, I was the youngest of five and I, I loved going to the library and reading books all summer. I was kind of a goofy kid that way. And I'm the one that had the lemonade stand. I sold the Girl Scout cookies. I made the macrame deals that I sold. I made Christmas ornaments. So I was very entrepreneurial at a, at a young age without entrepreneurial parents, by the way. Um, but I did have a grandmother who was my mentor in business. And she she's the one that really I, I observed and learned all about sales from it without knowing it. Um, but yeah, I did run for office and I, I was very much into, into making school better. <laughs> I bet you were too, right? I was just thinking about the comparison. I had a neighbor across the street who had a lemonade stand. So I had an iced tea stand because <laughs> you got to differentiate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I still was thinking about how much I really wanted that like fancy lemonade, like official, you know, like Lucy's in five cents kind of stand. Like I, that was my desire as a child. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like even at a young age, you had ideas for what would make a better school. You're willing to speak up about those and put yourself forward and that other people saw that and thought, great, let's give you a chance. And so you were informally, maybe even formally, you said you ran for office. Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing all that stuff. So clearly all this sort of potential built up in you in like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. Did you have a sense of what you were going to do with your life? Is there a career path that was laid out at that point? You know, was entrepreneurship the the plan? No, it was it was being a teacher. That's what I thought the whole time, even though I worked for my grandmother all through middle school, after school every day, I would walk to her. She had a dress shop. I grew up in Seattle and, and it was nicer clothing. So more upscale, her competitor would be Nordstrom, which back then in Seattle was a small chain, just a few stores, not a big, big deal. And, and so it was high end. And I, I saw my grandmother interact with the salesman that would come through from, from the market weeks to get us to buy the clothing for the upcoming seasons and they really tried to push her around and she re- always stood on her own and she'd tell them to go to hell. And, you know, they'd say, oh, Mrs. Hall, you're crazy. You know, you, you need this new midi skirt or maxi skirt. She'd say, no, my clients, my customers won't wear that. And they'd call her crazy and then they'd apologize the next market season. <laughs> huh. So it was a really good lesson to see uh, as a young person, you know, that that you, it's okay to speak up and to stand for what you believe in. I learned that from her. What a great role model to have, particularly an older woman speaking her mind to yeah. like a male-dominated sort of space. Yeah. And they're pushing back and she's pushing back harder and standing her ground. She knows what she knows and no one's yeah. going to tell her otherwise. I mean, that's a great thing to see and witness and believe is possible in the world. And and then it gives gives you some ideas. But it sounds like teaching 
was really the passion, like in a formal way? You meant like a like a K through twelve? Is that kind of teacher you're talking about yeah, being? That's what I initially wanted, and and as it turned out, I got bored with high school. I got out early, got my GED, and I got my uh, two year degree in early childhood education. By the time all my friends graduated from high school, wow! So yeah, so I I learned all about kids at early childhood ed so that I did become a teacher, you know, of younger kids. I work with two-year-olds, which was awesome, except that it's a very low-paying career, as we've all heard now since uh, we've been through the pandemic and people find out how how poor um, that field is compensated along with a lot of other things. And so, uh, and then I became a, a, a single mom. And so I realized I couldn't support my family on that. So that's when I left and got into uh, technology sales at the bottom, you know, just started at the bottom, worked my way. Wait, that's a jump. (laughs) (laughs) Playing with two-year-olds for a living, (laughs) not much of a living, but a living and switching to technology sales. Like who who introduces you to this? Well, technology was now, mind you, I'm older. So this was in the mid 80s, actually, a little before the mid 80s, around 1984 and 83. And technology was booming. And in business, we had big, massive computers. And people like Bill Gates wanted to put a computer on everybody's desk and put a personal computer uh, is what we called them at the time. And I thought, well, I can sell. And I really like technology. I was very fascinated by it. And I just thought, I'm going to sell technology. And so I applied, you know, at 30 different places. And finally, somebody hired me. So I was very tenacious. And I, uh, you know, just started helping people and worked in retail and then moved to corporate accounts and did that for about 15 years. Okay, there's so much to unravel about what you just said, Laurie. <laughs> First of all, how did you know you were good at sales? Is this because of your time selling Girl Scout cookies and lemonade? Like you had mm-hmm. the bug from that early age? Well, and I watched my grandmother and I, I realized she she built a big business selling, you know, and, and she would, it, she a, a woman would go in to try on something and they'd say, oh, I'm not a size 10, I'm an eight. And she'd know that it ran small and she'd go, just try it on, honey. You know, she'd give her the, yeah, but she could work. I saw her get, get a woman to wear a bigger size than what she thought she would, could wear. And I saw her sell to men for their wives. And, you know, I just, I, I just learned so many great tips about how she, she knew her buyer and she just went with the buyer. And that's what it is being an entrepreneur as well. If you can understand who your buyer is and what they want, what they need, you're just a step ahead of them and you help them get what they want. And in, in return, you get what you need. So it, it, it's a wonderful symphony. Yeah. It, it's interesting talking to you. makes me realize like I have a much longer sales history than I have given myself credit for because mm-hmm. I ended up going into entrepreneur from sort of early days of entrepreneurship in high school to nonprofit and into fundraising oh. and fundraising yeah. is all relationships as well. And so oh, yes, I've always is. sort of said, oh, that's the, what I'm leaning into when I'm doing sales. But, yeah. you know, I also sold candy in school and bagel sandwiches and Girl everything. Scout. I did Girl Scouts too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did all, I did all the things. Great. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
this is really interesting, but then to feel like you're going to tie that to a new emerging field of technology, which you didn't have. I mean, you're on the floor playing with kids. You weren't dabbling yeah. in, in technology, but clearly you felt comfortable doing something. I mean, it sounds like your grandmother's influence on you is quite profound. Yeah. The willingness to kind of go into something. Now, there, there was a mid-step, which is that I realized I needed to do something that paid more. So I was all about the money, making the money to support the family. And so I took a non-traditional course for women on Saturdays in, in, in the Seattle area. And so we did everything from scaffolding and pouring cement and all this other stuff. But when the electronics person came in and started talking about technology that's when I got really interested and I actually started to go a different direction and actually putting electronics together. And then I realized, no, I'm a people person. I, I need to get in front of this. And that's when I thought about sales and it kind of all came together. And, you know, I started on straight commission. I didn't make a penny until I sold something. So I had to be, you know, you had to learn, you had to learn fast. Yeah. I, the fact that you sought out, uh, an opportunity like this non-traditional yeah. class, which is kind of nowadays, of course, even now, I guess it's still kind of true. These are not class uh, sectors that have a ton of women, but right. that you were seeking out these opportunities, um, that you're willing to work on commission, knowing you'd have the ability to make it happen. But also you said the first 30 or so places said no. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that's tenacious. Uh, yeah. Very much so. Did you enjoy it once you got in on that ground level, though? Or was it what you oh, expected it was going to be? I loved it because there was really good training back then. So companies like IBM and companies like Apple would come in and we'd go through training programs. And Xerox, Xerox was known for great training. And we really learned uh, mm. how, you know, more uh, about how to sell. And companies don't do that anymore, unfortunately. Um, but it was uh, a wonderful way. And all my peers were young and we were excited. It was a very exciting time to, to get into the profession. I didn't run into issues uh, about not being a, you know, white, white guy, <laughs> basically, um, until my next job. But the fir my first uh, job at a company called The Bite Shop in downtown Seattle, it was amazing. And we pumped a ton of product out of that little store that we worked in. And how long were you there? Um, I was there a few years. Yeah. And then and you then moved up a my, little bit. Yeah. Some of my buddies went to this other company where there were bigger opportunities and more money to be made and more opportunities. And, but they had never hired a woman in field sales. So I had to have multiple interviews and, you know, go around and round with them until they ultimately hired me. So, and I imagine the culture though may not have been quite ready. So right. you were also groundbreaking. Yeah, it, it was never ready uh, the whole time I was there, and unfortunately, I was um, passed over for promotion and taken off an, a, a valuable account and things like that. Even though I was at the top of the leaderboard, you know, time and time again. In, in my first ninety days, I. I closed a multi-million dollar deal that the company would not have gotten had I not been there. So, um, so that was a really good start, but they just didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> yeah. Did you stay there very long? 
No, uh, when they didn't promote me and promoted my peer who had been there less time, basically took me off of my own account, I went to a competitor and uh, took the business away. Wow. Yeah. And then they went out of business, not because it nothing to do with me, right. <laughs> <laughs> all about them. Uh, right. So, yeah, but it, it was a good, it was a fun group of people I worked with. Um, but it, it was that the computer industry was just really it, so it was you spent about lot. 15 years kind of moving yeah. your way up into like different levels of sales. And yeah, did you eventually like own a market and a region? Like what, how, yeah. how did you end in that role? Yeah, I, um, I ended by in, in a, in a manager role overseeing a, a, a region. Um, and I worked with some very large, uh, corporate accounts. And then ultimately it was just, there was just so much turmoil in the industry that I, I just left to do other things. And then I got into other, um, other industries and, but I was always in sales and sold everything from advertising to, you know, worked with retail and all sorts of things. And, um, and then I ended up, my last corporate job was in Boston um, because I came out to watch my son play division one college hockey. And so I moved from Seattle to Boston and worked for this great company. And, um, and it was the la my last corporate uh, job. So it was and great. what led to the decision to leave that role and become a full-time entrepreneur? And yeah. like, was there a side hustle at first or? No, it, I was, uh, I was forced out. It, we were downsized because they were being acquired by a bigger company, Thomson Reuters which is a massive company. And I had my last role, I had built a corporate university and again, teaching, right. I got back to my teaching and worked that in. And, um, they, they already had a corporate university and I had a really big salary. And so, um, you know, they were whittling things down to get it ready to, to, to sell. And yeah, they became my first client. So, cause I asked them, you know, I said, you like what I did, right? And they said, Oh yeah, we love you. We you just don't want to pay for it. And they said, Yeah, that's exactly right. So they became my first client and I would I had this beautiful training room in downtown Boston until I ultimately moved back to Seattle a number of months later as planned. Wow. Okay. So nice that you're able to turn what was sort of a negative into a positive to get them to be your first client. Yeah what led you to realize that you weren't going to just look for another role? I mean, you'd up to that point been hopping from company to company for a while. Yeah. Why, why decide to, you know, focus on entrepreneurship then? Yeah. I thought I didn't want to be a salesperson again, although I might've, if somebody had twisted my arm, um, but I, I didn't want to be a manager. Uh, cause I just, I don't get as much out of managing other people. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I can help companies grow revenue. And that, that was the, the, the starting, the seedling of me building my business. And that was right after 9-11. So um, it was the beginning of 2002. Yeah. And so this is my 20th year this year. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's phenomenal. And yeah. Initially, it sounds like the clients you work with were the same kind of people you had previously been employed by. Like, right. how did your ideal client sort of shift over time 
Well, I had a really bad time explaining what I did. So <laughs> I, I had a very poor value proposition and I would encourage people to work on that in the beginning because that held me back at least for a few years. And finally, I had a friend of mine in Seattle who said, you know, I don't really understand what you do, but I think you could help my client. So he knew it had something to do with helping them in sales, but he wasn't really sure how or what or why. And so he connected me to uh, a, another, it was a computer reseller uh, that in, in distribution, you know, which I'm, I'm very familiar with. And um, it worked out really great. But even then, I wasn't clear with what I was doing. Ultimately, I changed the name of my company to Score More Sales. It wasn't named that initially. And, and I really honed in on what it is that I offered. And so I really did lose some good time. And, and I think that it's so important to put some money or thought or expertise um, in, from marketing into your business. It's just critical. Did you hire a coach or like, did anyone in those moments uh, start to help you? Yes, I, I was really into coaching at the time. And I did, I hired a business coach and also I hired a marketing company to help me rebrand because my, my old company name was Smile and Dial, <laughs> Smile and Dial Business Services sales services or something like that. And, and it was real cute, but you know, it, companies didn't say, this is a really powerful company that could probably help us. Um, so, oh, Smile, Smile and Dial Revenue Generation Services. That's what it was. So, um, so anyway, once I rebranded, you know, people immediately wear a logo, score more sales. Everybody's like, yeah, how do I get some of that? And it was a brilliant move, no thanks to me, but to the the brilliant marketer that uh, helped me rename it. Well, I mean, thanks to you for knowing you needed some outside help and being yeah. willing to invest in that outside help. Because I think early in owning a business, there's not a lot of money coming in. So people often spend the money in, in ways that are not necessarily the best ways, like they buy a lot of tech or they... I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to waste money and <laughs> feel like you're doing something for your business, but yeah. investing in a coach and, and this marketing agency helps you yeah. get kind of on the right path. And has it changed again? Like, I know you have a focus on helping women in sales. Are you really more now doing a blend of teaching as well as consulting or like how, what's the makeup currently of your business? Yeah, it hit me that my score more sales company, which has other people involved in it, we are continually working with different companies, mostly in tech, and they're very male majority. They're they're very white male majority, and it it hit me in, in 2015 that uh, I just I didn't know what was happening. Like why 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 don't sales teams look like buyers do, and and act like buyers buying teams do. And so I really wanted to put an effort into learning and, you know, doing some research. And, and so that's what I started doing. And then just helping companies to have more inclusive sales teams of all types. So it started with women, but it's really expanded. And I, I, I love the profession of sales. And I really want it to be more reflective of who we are as a society today. Mm. And your teaching roots. Yeah. Right. Like always a teacher always finding a ways teacher. to add value. Yeah. 
Um, it sounds like you had a few different challenges along the way. Early on, it was the branding. Then it was deciding your audience. It was adding new new things. Like, have you built out a team to support you? How do you decide yeah. what's in your lane? What's the things you need help with? Yeah, I I have a team in place. Um, a couple of them are employees. Most are contractors who work with other companies to some extent, but they're very loyal and they're very good. And and I think that's a good way to to build when you're early on. I've you know gotten I've adapted that mindset. It works well for me because I can scale up or down and. I have very much a lifestyle business, although it's been very six, you know, it's a multi six figure business. And yet I don't feel like I have a ball and chain, um, you know, leading a, an organization like mine. I would love to get it to a million dollars, which I haven't done yet. So that's one of my goals, just because most women don't have, you know, most million dollar businesses are not and over are not led by women. I just want to be like, see, I did it. <laughs> so right. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good enough reason. What do you think, Robbie? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. I have the same like question about those goals. Cause like I actually left, there was someone who was helping me with doing some marketing and we were on a call, a group call and he made some suggestion and I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to want to do that. And he goes, well, if you want to get to a million dollars. And I said, well, I didn't, I didn't say that that was my immediate goal and I ended up leaving like that role. I stopped working with them because I was like, <laughs> I don't know, like, I think it'll happen if you keep doing good work, but it does yeah. mean expanding your team and your capacity. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your lifestyle choices in a way, you know, yeah. because it's, and it's not necessarily more money in your pocket. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, exactly. it, it, it sounds really good, yeah. but then you're like, well, I mean, <laughs> the net may not nice be the setup same. right now. Yeah. I'm yeah. So if, it's, if you have a sweet well. setup, I don't know. I But I get like your point about there just not being a lot of women who have million dollar businesses. And yeah. that is something that it sounds like you're equipped to help other women do um, whether or not you choose that immediate goal. Right. And um, I think it's really interesting. Like you've pulled together just an incredible array of resources, the book, podcast, like it seems like you're you're trying to really create a community around what you're doing. Um, and you said it's it started about being about women, but it sounds like it's the underrepresented um, yeah, folks in absolutely. tech and in sales and yep. um, and really trying to like bring together those folks and create space. Mm-hmm. What's been your biggest observation in the last couple of years around how that's changed? Is it, has the pandemic changed anything in relation to these communities and how they're being perceived in sales or? Like, yeah, I, like, think, I really think George Floyd's murder and social justice movement. I was really surprised, happily surprised, at the young people that came together to, and everybody of all races came together um, and all genders, you know, to rally around that, and that really inspired me, and it also um, showed me that. That, you know, we still have a long way to go. And, and I really was, I really was focused on more women in sales. And I wasn't really focused on, uh, you know, underrepresented people in general, but it, it expanded me because it was like, well, why wouldn't you like, why would you want just more women? And, and, you know, not other, you know, just any, anyone that wanted to be a part of it, why can't we make 
space for that? And why can't we make people feel welcome and promote them and encourage them? And so it, it kind of went from there, but it was definitely during the pandemic that, that my eyes were open. Wow. Sounds like you then really widened the scope of your mission and uh, in your reach and who was included in the tent that you're building, which is very powerful. And the resources you're providing, I imagine, would help a lot of different kinds of people, you know, get their foot in the door and, and work their way yeah. up that ladder. Is there um, some way in which you're helping with culture because of the experience that you've had? Because I think getting hired is one thing, feeling comfortable enough to stay. I mean, that seems like a really big challenge. Yeah, and that that's the inclusive part, um, the, 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 the piece that isn't just about checking a box. Like, yeah, we interviewed, you know, multiple people and different people and you know we ended up with these people um but it's it's something to have people ask you your opinion and see if you can help change something or modify something within your group uh, or your organization or your team and and that's where i want to be it's it's not about checking boxes at all I, I you know i've seen that happen so much lip service there's so many people talking and just not enough people actually doing things because I think we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to say the wrong thing about gender. We don't want to say the wrong thing about race. We don't want to say the wrong, you know, we're worried about, you know, people, you know, calling us out or what have you. And, and I just would love to see a place where I can say the wrong thing and with best of intentions and someone else understand that and, and just help guide me toward you know, another, another way to say that or something that might be more inclusive. That's what we, we need to cut each other some slack and, and give some grace around these things. It's hard to be a good ally. Allies are often thrown away really quickly when they make a misstep. But if people are trying, I agree with you, like, you know, crossing that bridge partway to meet them and, and help them do better if they're aiming yeah. to do better. Is really is really key because we can't just do it no matter who the we is like the we can't yeah. be just contained to a small group of people the more we can unite around our shared values uh we can achieve a lot more you know yeah. great progress um i love that you're doing this in the context of sales because when i think of sales i mean i i happen to like sales i like relationships related to sales i get sales and i don't think of it as icky which i know some people listening are like oh sales but um it is interesting as a, as a lever for this conversation, it's very interesting because as you said earlier, why doesn't the sales team reflect the people we're selling to? Yeah. And we know as entrepreneurs that people choose us because of who we are. Like, right. like our value proposition is often tied to how we show up in the world. And while a lot of people can help you with X, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lot of things in the world. I'm a business growth strategy coach and I produce virtual events. And I know whenever people are choosing to work with me, it's because of me and yeah. the skills that I bring. And there are other people that could be, but I'm like, I'm not that, I'm not comparing myself to that market. I am doing this particular thing. And yeah. I think that when we feel like we can't share who we are in a work context, that's a loss. So yeah. it's really interesting lever to use with sales because it's a, it's a place where people put a lot of emphasis on hiring. And obviously it has to do with the bottom line, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so it's it's kind of interesting uh, to think about DEI and sales like in the same conversation. Yeah, it, it's it's my lane. You know, it's what I love. I say that sales is an admirable profession, and it doesn't have to be like Wall Street or you know some of those movies that people have seen. Um, 
greed is good and you know all that kind of stuff um uh, it, it's it's people bring different things to the role too and for a very long time you know business was built by men sales was built by men it's very much a boys club and it was a more aggressive um you know hardcore driver kill them you know close them kind of a culture and it doesn't have to be that way and and the rest of us can bring great gifts to the the table and people are learning that that's helping sales teams when we have diversity um it it raises revenues so it's all good so there's no downside to doing it it's just hard for people to to change and it's hard to um it's just hard to go from just saying something to actually doing it. Change is hard. Yeah. It's hard to move away from just checking the boxes to actually yeah. doing the work. I think uh, I find that true in a lot of instances, particularly this one. Yeah. So as you've done this the last 20 years and you have your career before that, um, you've met all kinds of people from all walks of life, from all kinds of industries, and you've grown an amazing network of people. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you have built that network and how you've sustained it. And I, you know, I always imagine there's that like core group of people that you know you're going to stay in touch with, whether it's regularly or infrequently. But it'll never feel like it's been a long time, and you'll always catch back up. But then yeah. I always think about that second and third tier or second and third layers out the people that you see once a year at a conference, or maybe you work with them five years ago, but you haven't had a reason to talk to them recently. These are people you like. I should mention that. <laughs> yeah, right. We like them. They like you. How do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections? Like any habits, philosophies, or practices? Yes, that's a great question. And it's uh, something I've worked on for a long time. I, I call that second layer strategic refers in business. I mean, they're also friends, but they're, they're people who can refer you multiple times. And, you know, I call it the third list because we have our first list is our, our existing customers. Our second list is our prospective customers. But the third list is those, are those people who can refer you on an ongoing basis. And, and you do like them and you do meet up with them and they understand a little bit about what you do. Some of them may have services before your service or after your service. That's a great combination. And then it's a matter of being mindful and keeping in touch with them. When I started my business, I sent out 50 postcards every month for 12 months. I had these postcards that had motivational quotes on the front. So it wasn't about, you know, hey, I'm doing this, you know, but it was it was a motivational quote. And then on the other side, I just said, hey, happy November uh, you know, what's new? What are you doing that I can help you with? You know, how can I support you? And then I signed it. And, and that's what I did to help get my name out there to build referrers that could remember what I do. Cause you got to stay in people's mind. They, you know, we do this, this interview is great. And then we do 50 other things and you're not going to be thinking about me and I'm not going to be thinking about you unless I send you a note or send you a postcard. So I did it every month for a year I went into one of these uh, folks' uh, offices pre-pandemic, of course, years ago, and they had all 12 of the postcards on their wall. And I found out that wasn't the only person that did that. There were at least two people because they were cool. They were inspiration inspirations. And so do something that adds value to other people and get in front of them on an ongoing basis. 
And if you do that, then every time, you know, they think of sales, they're like, well, let's, hey, if Lori doesn't know, she can refer somebody in her network. And it, and it, it works well. You made me think of my realtor. I bought my first yeah. home a year ago. And yeah. I'm now realizing I should interview him for this podcast because he's great. Yeah. Um, but we closed and uh, he sends, I don't know exactly what frequency, it's not monthly. It's a little less frequent than that. He'll send a postcard with a recipe. Yeah. And then right. of course, if you like the recipe, you hang it on the fridge and it stays there for a while. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, just like you said, you know, it's memorable and yeah. it keeps him top of mind. And, yeah, you know, between that and his great customer service during the experience of actually buying a home, yeah. um, I would absolutely refer him. Uh, and then I was thinking also of, I interviewed Chandler Bolt. Chandler Bolt launched self-publishing school when he was very oh. young hmm. and it's grown enormously. And he's a, a multi best-selling hmm. author. And he, early on, he wrote thank you notes one a day to people he yeah. admired. And in the in the end, a lot of those folks reached back out and mailed him books and scheduled calls and he did his handwritten letters. So yeah, I love that. I, yeah. I do that too. I, I met a, a leader at Microsoft and she had a huge organization and whenever it was somebody's birthday, they would do she would do a handwritten note and it, it was a massive undertaking in her big sales uh, team. But she did it. And it, it was quite impressive. Yeah. People don't forget that. Yeah. Right now I've been using um, a service called postable.com. Yeah. I initially reached out to use them because I needed a way to manage an online mailing list or an address book, I guess I'd call it. And at for, I like didn't use their service to send cards for like a while until I realized I need to get out of my own way, like mailing them by hand, I just never got to it. <laughs> Didn't right. matter how simple I made it. So now if I see something posted and I got the most beautiful voice note from someone, I sent a sympathy card. You know, I saw yeah. what they wrote on Facebook and I found their address and I sent them a card and it, it happened to show the day of the funeral. And I mean, you know, you don't do this for business, no. but, but then she thought, she said, you know, after I read it out loud, uh, to my husband, and I read it out loud to my mother on the phone. I thought, you know, given what Robbie does in the world, we could work with him. And so now we're going to do some work together. <laughs> and so, you yeah. know, and again, I I think you just show up for people. And I love your sure. postcard idea that they were well-designed, thoughtful, you know, inspirational quotes. And um, that's a really neat way to get on people's radar and stay on their radar. Yeah. And if you get mail, like, I guess some people don't anymore, but those of, those of us that do... You know, the, the little cards go around the top. That's the thing I open first. I don't know about you. Of course. But I open the cards and, uh, you know, and, and that's that's great. That's really neat. Um, are there any other ways you're staying in touch with the folks? Well, my LinkedIn, you know, I started on LinkedIn uh, about two years after it, it started. And I'm something like member number 23,000 or something. So way back now they have hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and I kept track of people for referrals. That, that's how I started was that whole strategic referral co concept. But I also want to keep track of my colleagues that I worked with in Boston when I left there. And, and then of course, LinkedIn, you know, blew up like it has. And in my database, I, so I also use HubSpot. And in my HubSpot, I categorize the different types of relationships I have, whether it's 
a friend, um, whether it's a strategic referrer or someone from certain industry, you know, when we do meet up in tech um, trade shows and things. And I keep all that. Um, I keep track of all of that because it, it helps me to stay organized and you can't just rely on LinkedIn to serve up who they think you should see. You have to be proactive. And I, I also use LinkedIn sales navigator, which I've paid for for years and I've never had any regret in doing that. And I am alerted to the things that are happening in their, their world through sales navigator. Oh, that's really interesting. I, okay, so now I have two questions. One, how much time does it take for you to maintain your HubSpot coding people and tracking and all those things? Nothing special. Um, just just code them as they go in. So we're really good about keeping track of everybody. You know, any potential lead or conversation that we have related to business goes in HubSpot, mm-hmm. and every person has a, a classification. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy. And then with Sales Navigator, you just started to make a use case that was more appealing to me than the ones I usually hear for Sales Navigator. <laughs> so tell me more about how you're using um, this upgrade because yeah. I keep not thinking it's worth it. Like I'm, I haven't tried it, but now well, I'm like, all, oh, I, I have a great mentor named Bril- Bryn Tillman. I who- love Bryn. I have interviewed Bryn. Bryn's a good friend of oh, mine. Good. He's in my women's sales pros group, but she just did a presentation last week in Atlanta at our event. And she, um, you know, she just reminded me of some extra uses. But what I do is I, I keep lists, you know, I track by whatever I'm sorting on. So for prospecting, I'm looking for VPs of sales and hire who have changed jobs because one of the things we do is we help um, we help companies figure out their existing sales team makeup. So if you're a new VP, you're walking in, you don't know what you have. If you're existing, you're probably part of the problem and you're not as interested to talk to somebody like me about seeing what you have. So I'll have a list like that and then it will update with, you know, every week when there's a new, someone puts in that they're new. Uh, I also do it by region. So we moved to Arizona. I want to know what cool businesses are in Arizona. Cause I, you know, I do some local work and, and I'm, you know, building relationships with people. So that's another one. And then um, just depending, I'm going to Dallas um, in a few weeks. So I wanted to see who was there. Um, I'm going to be speaking in Las Vegas, you know, so I'll, I'll look by geography and see who I'm connected to first degree and second. So second degree connections where there, there's a lot of gold because those are people that kind of know you and might have seen your stuff, but they, we don't know, we don't talk on a regular basis. And so there could be a lot, it's a weaker tie as they call them, weak ties, which can really be valuable. I love this because it is sort of frustrating to use the basic LinkedIn and do those kinds of geographic searches. Yeah. Facebook made it, they took that feature away. You know, if I'm yeah. going to be in San Francisco or Las Vegas, like yeah. I'd like to know who else I might run into. Yeah. Um, so that's, that already makes it really appealing. And then you're layering in like lists and different mm-hmm. sort of search functionality and it being updated. I could see a lot of people listening thinking, Oh, you know, I, I wasn't really going to use that, but yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a hardcore sales outbound sales strategy, but I have a hardcore networking strategy, yeah. which ultimately is sales, but 
it's um i can I, it's making me think about this and i'm going to reach out to bryn because if i am going to use their free thing for a month i want someone to coach me on how to make use of it because yeah. i also know that i sign up for things and then don't always use them because that's yeah, the danger <laughs> she's very good at saying do this 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 and this <laughs> Yeah, we'll have a, we'll put a link to her podcast in the show okay. notes. She's an excellent podcast and live show, as yeah. well. And um, I, I learn a lot from listening to her. So as we're wrapping up, I, I have sort of one of my favorite wrap up questions here, which yeah. is: I do hope we are going to stay in touch, Laurie, and that a year from now, I suddenly realize it's been a year since we did this interview, and I'm going to want to ask you in that moment: Hey, what are you going to celebrate? Like, what's been going on this past year? Yes. I'm going to celebrate uh, more women in, in B2B sales and particularly in sales leadership. And we'll be able to cite some specific examples, work to literally change the face of sales. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to celebrate that. And I would love for people to find you and follow your work. What are the best ways for them to do that? Yep. The best way is I'm score more sales at score more sales on most everything, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. And we have uh, pages for both score more sales and for women sales pros. So that's probably the best way. Reach out, connect to me on LinkedIn and, and reference the show so that I know because I got a lot of requests. Yeah. We'll put all those links in the show notes as well as your podcast conversations with women in sales yes. and you can find that all at on the schmooze.com lori thank you so much for this conversation oh thank you robbie it's really been my pleasure i hope you enjoyed my conversation with lori what is your key takeaway something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come share what resonated with you in the show notes at on the schmooze.com look for episode 308 that's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's overcome challenges to achieve success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their entrepreneurial journey, how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.